Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And then one day I was invited by a wonderful friend of mine called Jenny Dyson to go to the Port Elliot Literary Festival down in Cornwall. And she said, You're always sending me poems to cheer me up. You're always sending me poems in times of difficulty when my dad died, when I got divorced. I'm setting you up in a tent after you've done your talk and I'm equipping you with an armchair, a shrink's couch and a prescription pad, which I'm going to design for you. And what you've got to do is photocopy every poem you think could be helpful to people and bring them down. It's mentally yours from Ellen and Uh, focus on your mental health, you surely won't regret. It's mentally, 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 mentally yours. Mentally yours. Mentally yours. Welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's weekly podcast about all things mental health. I'm Ellen. And I'm Yvette. And this week we're going to be chatting to William Seacart. He set up a best-selling anthology called The Poetry Pharmacy, which is a lovely collection of poems. Now he's chatting to us about his latest book, The Poetry Pharmacy Returns, and how he's spent a lot of time listening to people and their issues. It's the development of a lifetime of work in a way. I I began a love affair with poetry when I was a child and like a lot of people, I discovered poetry in a time of great need. I was in that strange British habit sent to boarding school when I was eight and it's it's an odd thing to send a child the other side of the country to a place that no one loves them and I was lonely and I was small and I was quite friendless at that point and very anxious and the only thing I seemed to be good at was reading poetry aloud and I won a prize, I won a 10 shilling prize, which gives your listeners an idea of just how old I am. That became my thing. After, I suppose I got into my 20s and I just found myself learning poems off by heart because poetry, you know, had been connected to me in some way or another and I, I, I wasn't frightened of it. A lot of people are very intimidated by poetry. And one day I was crossing the Cromwell Road and I was waiting for the lights to change and... As the lights turned red, the man standing next to me started crossing the road and a car jumped the lights. I can still hear it almost more vividly than I can see it now, but it was the most shocking thing that's ever 
happened to me at the, certainly at that stage of my life and the man was sort of thrown across the road and luckily somebody else in the crowd was a first aider and he grabbed me and between us we we gave the man a kiss of life because his pulse had stopped and amazingly the pulse began again and uh it seemed like moments later there was an ambulance and he was gone and then the police took my statement and then I was standing in exactly the same spot on Cromwell Road and the only evidence I had of this extraordinary sort of tumult was I had blood on my hands but I had no way of processing it except I had just learned a poem and it was a poem by Philip Larkin and it's called Ambulances and it's a poem all about how when you see the ambulance on your street and you see your neighbour be taken away for the last time, how it makes you think. And poor soul, you whisper at your own distress. And you sense the solving emptiness that lies just underneath everything we do. And for a moment get it whole, so permanent and blank and true. And there was something about those words and the very large gin and tonic I had in the pub that helped me process that. And I, it, I wasn't conscious then of what I was doing but I just started to um, realise in some ways, in hindsight, I was self-medicating with poetry and uh, like a a lot of your listeners, I've I've had a lifetime of anxiety and all sorts of, you know, mental issues and everything else and uh, I began to realise, I think at that point that poetry gave me a sense of, the right poem gave me a sense of complicity with how I felt and that helped me make sense of it. Roll on, roll on, roll on and I started publishing business and then I started a thing called the Forward Prizes for Poetry which are the biggest poetry prizes in in Britain now and they're about 28 years ago and then I started a thing called National Poetry Day which um, was last week um, but uh, happens, you know, it's now 25 years old and I'm doing, you know, lots of things to try and get poetry out of poetry corner, maybe making the corner a bit bigger, but not necessarily changing the world. And then one day I was invited by a wonderful friend of mine called Jenny Dyson to go to the Port Elliot Literary Festival down in Cornwall. And she said, you're always sending me poems to cheer me up. You're always sending me poems in times of difficulty when my dad died, when I got divorced. I'm setting you up in a tent after you've done your talk and I'm equipping you with an armchair, a shrink's couch and a prescription pad, which I'm going to design for you. And what you've got to do is photocopy every poem you think could be helpful to people and bring them down. So I thought, okay, this would be a gimmick and I'll do this for an hour. And six hours later, I was still in that tent with a very full bladder and uh, there was enormous queue. I thought, oh my God, she's really onto something, my lovely friend Jenny. It being a festival, I ended up doing it over two or three days and then somebody who'd come to talk to me about their problems worked for the BBC and the next thing I knew, I was on Radio 4 on the Saturday morning Reverend Richard show and... As they started talking to me and I started providing um, one or two prescriptions for various conditions, the producer said, we've never had so many emails. They're just coming in thick and fast. Will you come back on uh, Christmas, which is, you know, famously a tricky time to be with your loved ones, uh, nearest and dearest or not so dearest? And I went back and did that. And it sort of grew and grew and grew. And I really... The delightful thing about all of this is it's all happened by mistake, really. And then the final phase to it was that I was sitting next to a lady at um, dinner one night uh, at somebody's house, and um, I was puffing away on my vape, and she said to me, God, I've got to get one of those because I've taken up smoking again. And because I'd been listening to people's problems all day, and because I'd had probably slightly too much to drink, 
I said something inappropriate about her relationship with her husband and she grabbed me by the arm and said, how did you know? And I said, I'm really sorry. I've been just been listening to people's problems all day and I must have just sensed it. And she said, are you shrink? And I said, no, no. Uh, I use poetry to try and help people. And she turned to me and said, there's a book in this. I'm a literary agent. And so... That's that's how we get got to to here, really. I'm so thrilled you started there. Actually, I have to say with Philip Larkin because he mm-hmm. is one of my favourite poets of all time. I went to Hull University to study him. So when you said about ambulances, oh. I was just like, oh, amazing. Yes. Do you have a favourite poet? Philip Larkin is the awful truth. So oh, brilliant. We, we, we're, we're, you know, we can we, we can link arm in arm poetically. <laughs> the yeah. scope there, I think, of his the things that he writes about, just the range of emotions. There seems to be. I mean, a, a poet for a poem for all different sort of situations with him, I think. Maybe not, like, lo- loads of joy. There's not a lot of joy, but of <laughs> course... There's things to do with work, there's things to do with love, there's things to do with friends. It's all very, yeah, across the board. Is there a lot of joyful poetry? I kind of think of oh, it Oh, yeah. Like well, Mayor, An- Mayor Angelou, quite That's joyful. True. There is a lot of joyful poetry. Mm. But as I said, most people turn to poetry in times of need when their heart is broken, when they're grieving, mm. when they're dealing with a significant event. And so, on the whole, they're focused on stuff that's going to help them with that rather than just a simple daffodils or everything's great great. yeah because everything isn't great let's face it so and of course what's really remarkable about poetry and uh, I think it's partly going back to this thing I was we were discussing that because people aren't going to church or the mosque or the synagogue uh, you know the way which they used to poetry has become the secular liturgy it's the way people find spiritual release and a sense of emotional complicity with how they feel um, by raiding uh, things that people have written sometimes a thousand years ago that's what's so delightful about this is that if you read if you read how you feel expressed by someone else considerably more beautifully than you can express it yourself and it was written a thousand years ago you realize right away I'm not alone I'm not mad and what's more people have been worrying about this for all this time this is normal and that's really important try being sent to boarding school when you're eight you know just for starters i mean the weird separation from your parents from love from all of those things it's a throwback to rather like the spartans used to do with their children in order to turn them into tough soldiers and i suppose in a way it's a throwback to when britain had an empire and that if you could survive aged eight the other side of the country without your parents and without a love, then you could administer a quarter million square miles of the British Empire and not see another white man for three months and you'd be fine. You know, I, I mean, I'm just, you know, maybe rather spuriously making that connection. But so I think that was the most dominant thing for me. And uh, uh, I'm also the child of a refugee. And uh, he was a very damaged person as a result of being a refugee. I don't think too many people here in this country can actually imagine what it does to the psyche of a child to be uprooted from their culture and their country, suddenly to be thrown somewhere else. And my dad arrived here in May 19, no, March 1939, speaking only German. And you can imagine that was pretty challenging. Yeah, absolutely. Can you tell us a bit more about prescribing poetry for people? So how do you go about picking a poem for someone? Well, um, after Port Elliot and my brief appearance on Radio 4, I was then asked by the government to do a review of the future of the public library network. So I offered to do a poetry pharmacy in every library I visited. And for 18 months, I travelled around the country and I listened to about a thousand people's problems, one-on-one, like, you know, like a therapist would. And through that period, I started to build and build my medicine cabinet. 
as any doctor would probably tell you, that the vast majority of people who come into her or his surgery um, have the same issues. And I think, to me, one of the most intriguing and humbling aspects of all of this was whether I was in a mental health unit in Liverpool or a leafy library in Kensington. Most people have got the same problems. Loneliness is the biggest problem of the lot. And what's interesting about loneliness is how we live in a world where we seem to have so many platforms of communication more than ever before, and yet we seem to be lonelier than ever. Now, I, having listened to so many people, I begin to understand it. And I, every day I look at human beings sitting next to each other, but looking at these screens and communicating with people elsewhere, but not communicating with each other. And that, as we know, is happening not just on a park bench, it's happening in bed. You know, who's the last person you're saying goodnight to? The person you share a bed with or your phone or the first person you say hello to in the morning? Um, we've, we're really becoming atomized by this. If you think as consenting adults how many difficulties we have with it and with the social media associated, try being 11 or 14. You know, it's impossible. It really is. I mean, I, I, I'm pushing 60 and I can flick through Instagram and on a bad day come away feeling really quite anxious and left out. I'm 60, I'm 59. You know, again, be a child and think, you know, I, I, they don't have the protective capacity of adulthood and experience. It's really dangerous what's going on. And we're not dealing with it, but it's taking us away from the original principles of life, of high tide and low tide, of continuity. And I think, again, this is why poetry is so helpful, because it grounds you. It reminds you of what's really important and takes you away from this instant response that all these screens are requiring of us. So loneliness, in a lengthy answer to your question, sorry, loneliness is the top issue. And in a way, I have the shortest poetic prescription for loneliness, written by a Persian poet called Hafez, uh, all of 700 years ago. And he said, I wish I could show you when you're lonely or in darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. I'd give it to my patients, I'd print it out for them, a photocopy or whatever, and ask people to stick it on their mirror uh, and learn it off by heart and say it to themselves every day. And again, I, I got a very moving email from somebody saying, you won't remember me, but you met me in Liverpool and you gave me that. And last night I came home to my flat and it had been burgled. And in that very disturbing way that burglars do, all stuff had been spread everywhere. She said, the only thing that hadn't moved were those two lines of poetry. Thank you, she said. It got me through the night. Mm. Do you get a lot of emails from people or contact from people afterwards explaining how it's helped them? I do, because um, in the first Poetry Pharmacy book, I put an email address at the back saying, send me any poems that have changed your life that you know might be useful for, to add to my prescription cabinet. That book came out two years ago, and I probably get three or four emails a week, every week. Uh, from people not just sending poetry, but sending their stories and their anxieties and their worries, their recommendations and their requests. Yeah, it's extraordinary. It's, it's uh, as I said, I spent a lifetime trying to get poetry out of Poetry Corner. And now it's, it's sort of, you know, hold back the flood, really. How has it affected your mental health, listening to people's problems so much? Not very well. It hasn't helped me. And uh, in retrospect, I shouldn't have been quite so open-minded, open-hearted, cavalier perhaps, whatever would be the right word for it. I should have got a bit of training 
and should have got a therapeutic supervisor to offload. I, I've been doing it in 15, 20-minute chunks and listening to between 8 and 10 people at a time. So two or three hours of solid listening to people offloading. And that's an awful lot. And um, my only instinct was that I had to be utterly present and be able to look that person in the eye all the time and be there for them. If they were going to have the humility to pour out their worries to a stranger sitting in a, in a funny little room with a box of tissues, I needed to be there. And I was. But actually, it made it very hard to defend myself, if that's the right word, from um, uh, once, once, once the, the troubles were offloaded, as you might say, from not retaining them myself. And actually... Earlier this year, I was asked to do an adolescence um, pharmacy, and I did, and it was the most disturbing afternoon I spent because I wasn't just dealing with adults who were struggling. I was dealing with young people who were struggling and struggling for some pretty shocking things, and I couldn't intervene. You know, there are rules. My job was to be there for 15 minutes, but a couple of them, I felt, were telling me things that they hadn't ever told anyone before, and... I was worried that they were living in situations where they were at risk and all that kind of stuff. And it haunted me. How do you deal with that? I don't really know. Uh, I've gone, I've, I've now found a supervisor, uh, but um, I'm not really going to go back and do too much more prescribing until I've offloaded because I realized I've got five years to offload. Uh, as you can imagine, if you've listened to, you know, more than a thousand people, there's some really sad stories in there. Have you been in therapy yourself? Yes. Um, my father died 30-odd years ago when I was 26, 27, young. And in retrospect, I think I probably had a bit of a breakdown. Um, it didn't, you know, I got, I got through it. I carried on working. I carried on doing m my life. Uh, and I went into therapy for a couple of years. And then in my so mid-30s, I did another couple of years with the same therapist when... I split up with somebody and I just thought, I've got to make sense of all of this. And then years later, I did a lot of conflict work in Gaza, uh, which meant that uh, I saw some really shocking things. And I, again, I needed a bit of help. What was, the, what was the stuff in Gaza, do you mind me asking? It's called conflict mediation. I, I was working uh, between warring parties that don't talk to each other. Did you get, um, so you, you had therapy for that? Yes, I, I was talking to somebody because I was doing, going there a lot and seeing some quite worrying things and uh, once you see things it's quite hard to ever remove the imprint from your psyche uh, I was there a number of times when there were quite severe military uh, things going on and you know I, I got to see w w young people and children you know in some pretty shocking scenes I don't you know, want to go into detail but uh, I definitely needed someone to talk to after that yeah. Have you learnt any sort of offloading techniques now from those experiences and from therapy at all? Uh, cycling, actually, funny enough, is, a, is my best hour of the day. Uh, I find that the most helpful. I also, most days, go and work out for an hour, uh, first thing in the day. And however depressed, however anxious, however whatever, uh, I, I start the day with, if I've cycled for half an hour to the gym, done an hour in the gym, and then cycled a bit longer to get to my office... Th that helps an awful lot, uh, an awful lot. And um, it's something I'd recommend to everybody. I just think you just should do this every day. You know, it, it's easy, easier said than done because if, 
you know, some people, uh, if they're really overwhelmed by depression, it's quite hard to get out of bed, let alone get out into the fresh air. Yet there's no doubt about it that the change of scene, the change of air, the, I don't know what the technical term is, I can remember what they call endorphins or something, it helps. Having listened to people's problems now for many, many years, it's apparent that it's worse than it's ever been out there. And partly, you know, by the situation of Trumps and Brexits and climate extinction and all these kinds of things, it's pretty bewildering. And you have to do, I think now, everything, either for yourself or if you're responsible for others, to really think very carefully about how the day goes and what is needed. Because if you don't, I think that um, particularly adolescence can be permanently damaged. So going back to the poetry, do you have any go-to poems that are sort of like your standout ones, like a poetry first aid kiss, ones you just like, yeah, this is a stellar one, this is a stellar one? Well, I I gave you the Hafez for loneliness. Um, Another good example would be uh, courage, which is sort of quite a big issue in people's minds, having the courage to start a relationship, end a relationship, paint a painting, write a book, whatever it would be. And there's a beautiful piece of poetry, originally written by a French poet called Apollinaire, and um, it was adapted and translated uh, in, into English and by a wonderful poet called Christopher Logue, who was famous for being private eyes poet, E.J. Thrib. Um, and uh, he was a tremendous character. And I once asked him if he'd be a judge for the Forward Prizes. And he said, only if I can be the only judge, which, of course, he couldn't. However, the poem goes like this. Come to the edge. It's too high. Come to the edge. I'm too scared. Come to the edge. And they came and they pushed and they flew. And again, I think that's a wonderfully powerful, it would work with a child, with an adult, with anyone. We're all fearful of doing all kinds of things. Do I dare ring him? Do I dare ask her out? Do I dare? Whatever it may be. And it's partly because, well, it's mainly because of fear of failure, isn't it? It's all going to go horribly wrong. I'm going to embarrass myself, humiliate myself forever. <laughs> but of course, you don't know until you try. And I, and I do think one of the problems about the age of anxiety, as I see it now, We're obsessed with things that haven't happened yet. Our headlines in the paper are all about what might happen, not what did happen. And, of course, that has a terrible impact, again, on sort of fear of the future. It becomes a gloomy, worrying thing waking up in the morning rather than thinking, actually, this is all exciting. Anything could happen. I think a lot of what you've mentioned is kind of not anti the internet, but you're saying it's kind of an epidemic and it's causing so many issues. And poetry, I feel like, is a real-world connection with something. How else can people stay present and how can they kind of disconnect from all the news and internet and horrible stuff going on? Well, I think you've used the crucial word, disconnect. Mm. You know, I, I read all the time because I'm, I'm a writer and a publisher and uh, enthusiast for words. But even I find when I'm sitting reading, my hand creeping across to that device after a few pages, thinking, wait a minute, what am I doing? Why am I reaching for my phone? Nothing's changed, all that. What I have learned, actually, I think as much as anything else, part of it is, is colour. I know that sounds strange, but if you walk into a pub and there's the telly on, even if the, the, the sound is off, you're sitting with people and chatting to them. You keep finding your eye drawn to the telly. I think that's what colour screens do. 
So I definitely say, if you can't wholly disconnect, you can put your phone on black and white. And that does make quite a big difference. It's a lot less attractive to spend time looking at. It's much harder work. And, you know, if you go on the settings, and I think it's general and then appearances or something like that, you'll find it. And that really helps. I think the only way otherwise to disconnect is you really got to consciously try. Everything about our lives is designed to hook us in and hook us in and hook us in. So we no longer even question it. How often do you find in your moment? Again, I mean, I'll give you a good example of, you know, different generations. But when I was small, my mum used to say to me, life is boring and you just have to learn to live with it. Young people now are never bored because they just turn to their screen. There's always something to distract. But of course, if we don't have boredom, you don't have creativity in a fundamental way. You don't, you don't have a chance to sit there and go, what can I do to make this more interesting, whatever it may be? So uh, I think that's terribly important. I think getting outside is very important, getting into nature. We talked about cycling. We talked about taking exercise. Uh, there's a reason the Romantic Poets, the Coleridges, and all these people, and Keats's talked about beauty. There were awful things going along in their era, both politically and in poverty and everything else. And every day was pretty damn crap compared to what it is today in terms of lots of those issues. What did they do? They went out to the Lake District and went walking and, and enjoyed the beauty of the world around them. That's the way they dealt with all those difficulties. So in that sense, nothing's really changed. Disconnect, get out in nature, take exercise, and read from paper. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Yes, just one thing about the power of poetry and how life-changing it can be. Last year, I was asked to uh, do a pharmacy in a co-working building in London that was opening. And uh, I spent the afternoon listening to people's problems. And halfway through, the security guard came in and he said, your 3.30's cancelled. And I said, OK, that's that's fine. Thanks for letting me know. He said, can I take their place? I said, of course, sit down. What can I do for you? And he said... uh, I came out when I was 24, and I'm 31 now, and I still haven't had a relationship. And I said, that's really sad. What do you put it down to? Why do you think you haven't had a relationship? And he said, I, you know, I'm positive, I'm cheery, I'm upbeat, I'm a kind person, I'm good to be with, but I'm Muslim and I'm gay, and I don't feel I can be both. And I said, I think you can, because the greatest poet that ever lived, the Hafez, who we talked about, 700 years ago, the Sufi mystic, you know, which is the sort of height of um, Islamic uh, 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 faith and the, uh, the center of the religion, said, it happens all the time in heaven. And one day it'll happen again on earth. That men and women who are married are men and men who are lovers. And women and women who give each other light will get down on bended knee with tears in their eyes and say to their loved one, How can I be more loving to you? How can I be more kind? And he got up out of his chair, streaming eyes, gave me a big bear hug. And now he's dating. So this is goodbye from mentally yours. So go away, enjoy your day, get on with all your chores from mentally, mentally. Mentally 
If you've been affected by any of the issues we've discussed today, please contact the Samaritans on 116 123 or go to their website at samaritans.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a rate or review. Five stars would be lovely. Also, if you've enjoyed this, come and have a chat to us on Facebook. We've got a group called Mentally Yours. Also, we have a Twitter, which is Mentally YRS. Thanks very much to our producer, Juliette Nichols and Sam Bonham, and to our guest this week. See you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.